When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Really looking forward to my conversation with Jeff Snyder. Jeff is the Eurodollar expert. Eurodollars are a market I've traded most of my life. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting signals there. Jeff's all over it. So let's dig in, find out what he's picking up from the market and what some of the outcomes are and what it all means for us. Macro investing is a journey. Join me, Raoul Powell, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro landscape. This is how I build my macro framework by talking to the smartest people in the world. Jeff, great to see you, my friend. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Raul. Good to see you again. Yeah. So just before we get going, just to give people, most people know who you are by now, but give you a bit of your background, uh, what you do and how you got here. <laughs> it's a long story. I started out in, in just traditional research and portfolio management, but uh, over time, research overtook the portfolio management, just uh, digging into the monetary system, financial markets, and how all these things relate. Um, you know, money macro focus, and eventually it led me into basically doing independent research for Eurodollar University, which is the the company that I started, and trying to educate as many people as I can to what these financial signals are, what they mean in, in the context of your of the Eurodollar system, the monetary system, and how it all really kind of fits together. Now, yeah, I mean, you've gone through it many times on Real Vision what the Eurodollar system is, but just to give people an overview of why it matters to them. Because a lot of people kind of hear it, they don't really understand it, they see your work. But just to give them a little bit of the basis of understanding of why it matters to them. Well, if you really think about it, the euro dollar is the global reserve currency. And it's denominated in the U.S. dollar, but it's actually the system behind it is largely located outside the United States, which is really what the term euro dollar means. It's not, about, it's not necessarily about Europe. It's not, certainly not about the European common currency. The term euro means offshore. So it's essentially banks that operate a monetary system outside the regulational jurisdiction of the United States, Europe, pretty much anywhere. So that's why there's a heavy emphasis on you know, you know, tax havens like the Cayman Islands and other places. The city of London, which is where most of the euro dollar began. But essentially, you have this offshore bank-centered framework that operates the logistics, the infrastructure of a global reserve currency. It's called the U.S. dollar, even though there's not really any U.S. dollars in it. And so as a reserve currency, it touches pretty much anything, anybody, anywhere, because we all have to intermediate through this euro dollar system in order to get things done. And many countries around the world, because of how they operate their own local currency system, a monetary system, are actually directly dollarized by the euro dollar, too. So it's not just the global reserve currency. It also has external as well as internal impacts on various countries around the world, including China, by the way. And how are you dealing with the change to SOFA? away from euro dollars in terms of the derivatives, the lending markets. That's annoyed the hell out of me having to get to, used to something new. It's, I don't like, an old, I'm an old dog. I don't want to be taught new tricks. Yeah, you never quite know, right? I mean, SOFR is a brand new thing. I mean, it's, you know, they've been keeping track of it since 2018. But yeah, the, the death of euro dollar futures and the, the you know, LIBOR, which I mean, today, that's a you know, big story in the BBC about how central banks were trying to manipulate LIBOR in 2008, which gets to the really the heart of the matter here, which is that LIBOR was a better a representation of the monetary system and conditions in the monetary system than anything central bankers had or actually what central bankers wanted us to believe, which is why they've been on this decade-long crusade to get rid of, of LIBOR and the Eurodollar futures and push everything into, you know, SOFR and SOFR futures uh, without really having a really good idea of whether SOFR futures can actually replicate what Eurodollar futures and what LIBOR told us along the way, which is 
One reason why it took so long to do the transition, the bank said, we'd rather stick with LIBOR because LIBOR actually told us what was going on, not the SOFR and SOFR futures. Um, before we dig into where we are now and what's going on, how big, what's your estimate and the size of the euro dollar market? Because it's very hard to pin down, right? But how big do you think it is? I have no idea, Rowe. <laughs> I gave up. I gave up on trying to quantify it many, many years ago because I don't think it's possible to quantify it because the monetary forms, the stuff that gets traded, that goes back and forth inside the euro dollar system is so esoteric, it doesn't fit into any neat little box. It doesn't even fit into bank balance sheets. We'd have to, we'd have to redo the way we count for how banks account for what they do in order to even have any prayer of trying to uh, quantify what the euro dollar system is, which is why I spend so much time trying to get signals from the system itself, not being able to quantify it. But, you know, what are the curves telling us? What are the financial markets telling us? Because that's what the system is telling us from the inside. But very broad, general terms, the euro dollar is just huge. It's immense. It's bigger than you think it is. We're talking dozens of trillions, maybe 100 trillion. I mean, there is so much uh, involved in it, including all the derivatives, around, or at least most of the derivatives around the world that are in some ways uh, uh, connected to the euro dollar system. So, I mean, just gross notional derivatives are into the several hundred trillions in, in that. Yeah, I, all I figure out is 87% of world trade is in US dollars. And that's just part of the euro dollar market. That doesn't include the debt markets of which, I don't know, 70% of all the world debt is in dollars. And then there's the banking system and the derivative markets on top. So it's, yeah, who knows how big it's, yeah, probably hundreds of trillions of dollars. Well, you know, the BIS, you know, every, every once in a while, the BIS kind of throws something out there like, hey, you know, there's some, this euro dollar might be important kind of a thing. And there was a, there was a note, when was it last fall, where they, they mentioned that 80 trillion in, in money that was missing. Well, that's basically what they were talking about. You know, they were saying there's these, all these derivatives that are used in every way like money. And so when you look at uh, derivatives and uh, trade financial flows, as you're just pointing out, Rubel, um, you know, it's almost everything is uh, all the currencies around the world that trade. Everything on the other side of it is the U.S. dollar. So everything in the derivative markets and these financial flows, they all intermediate through the euro dollar system. So even if you try to break it down by currency, it's really just the other side of, of the same coin. So it's the euro dollar is omnipresent. Let's put it that way. So what is the state of the euro dollar market now? What is it trying to tell you? Because, you know, I'm trying to get the ideas for what you're thinking about liquidity, how the markets play out, what the signals are. So let's dig into where we are. Well, where we are is that just in, from a very broad perspective, the market, you know, these signals that we try to dig into, the, uh, the market curves, the euro dollar, what used to be euro dollar futures, now SOFR futures, yield curve, all these other things, which are the, the euro dollar system itself trying to tell us what's going on or what, what's perceived to be going on or what the perception of risks are moving forward. In very broad, simple terms, what they're saying is that everyone is near certain that interest rates are going to go lower. They're going to go a lot lower and they're going to start going lower probably this summer. And so that much is, is, that much is easy. That much is really simple. I mean, that's what all the curves are saying. That's what every, all the markets are saying with a high degree of certainty doesn't matter where you look, they all say the same thing. And so we just have to do a little bit of detective work, working back from that is what would cause interest rates to go lower. Again, speaking very broad general terms, that's a deflationary outcome. Uh, contrary to what most people are led to believe, low interest rates aren't stimulus. Low interest rates are a sign that money is tight, that we're in a deflationary episode because if there's a huge amount of demand for especially safe and liquid investments, that tells you something very important about perceptions of safety and liquidity. So if safe and liquid are in high demand, that means that safety and liquidity are at least questionable. And given from where the, the Federal Reserve is today and the ECB or central banks around the world who are still convinced that they need to keep rates high for long because they think inflation is the biggest risk, for the market to say, we not only think that they're wrong, we think they're going to be starting to, they're going to start cutting rates and get rates lower, not far ahead in the near term future. It, it really, I mean, it narrows the list of possibility here. So we're talking about a deflationary scenario. We're talking about in the real economy, most likely a, a, a large surge in unemployment, because what are those, what are the things that, gonna get, that are going to get Jay Powell and the Fed's attention? It's banking difficulties that, that seem to be out of control, as well as 
economic fallout, especially in terms of unemployment. So the euro dollar system, just from broad perspective, says we're headed for a lot of trouble here, and a lot of trouble is in the near term future. And so, what are the component parts? I mean, I see, you know, my forward looking inflation stuff suggests that inflation could hit zero by the summer headline inflation. The markets, the most pervasive narrative I think I've ever seen in financial markets has been this sticky inflation narrative. Talk me through what you're picking up from the, what the markets are telling you and how you think through that. I think it's wrong. I think sticky inflation is wrong. But what, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I absolutely 100% agree with you. And I think the markets all agree with you, too. The reason the perception persists is because I don't think people understand what inflation actually is. Real legitimate sustained inflation, the 70s style that most people are talking about, that's a monetary phenomenon. And the monetary system itself has said that isn't happening. And so most people try to try to uh, like the uh, central banks and, and mainstream Keynesian economists to try to bring it into the to the uh, scope of the Phillips curve and say, well, it's it's the uh, trade off between unemployment. Right. If we have a tight labor market, then that leads to consumer prices or at least the higher wages that then companies have to charge higher consumer prices and you lead to this wage price spiral. So that is what's gotten most people's attention as far as you know, what is what are the future risks? They think it's macroeconomic when that's not how inflation actually works. It gets out of control when there's too much money in the system. And the system is telling us, as you know, Raul, there is no money in the system for this to happen. So the wage price spiral, which has become a pervasive narrative, is not something the market is considering because that's, you know, there isn't the money to keep it going. Instead, we have, we had a supply shock, right? We had the massive imbalance between supply or really, you know, demand that was artificially uh, accelerated because of government programs for various reasons and the inability of the global system to keep up with that demand, which small e economics, very simple economics teaches us that the only way for those two, two factors to reconcile is through higher prices, which is exactly what we got. But that's not inflation and that's not sustainable because that's an artificial redistribution of both money as well as economic activity in the most harmful and unproductive ways. And when you have harmful and unproductive redistribution, eventually that's going to come back to bite you, which is where we are today. We have the markets that are telling us that that day of reckoning is coming closer and closer and closer when we have to pay for an unproductive several years where everything got out of whack. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, you say, and people get confused by this, you say, well, there's no money in the system. But everyone looks at it and says, there's enormous amounts of money in the system. Jeff smoking crack. Tell them, explain what you're talking about. Well, everybody sees the Federal Reserve. Everybody watches the Fed's balance sheet. And the Fed says, hey, we're, we're going to do quantitative easing, which means we're going to raise the systemic level of bank reserves or quantitative tightening. They're going to lower the systemic level of bank reserves. And everybody thinks, well, bank reserves, that's a form of money. In fact, we, lots of people call it base money. So if the Fed is raising the level of bank reserves, they're laving, raising the systemic level of base money, they've just printed a bunch of money, which, I mean, if that was the end of the story, that would be true. But nobody ever stops and thinks about what are these bank reserves and what do they actually do? Are they actually, for, actually a form of base money? And the answer is no. And they haven't been in decades. In fact, this was a major problem that Paul Volcker uh, confronted in the late 70s and early 1980s. Banks had found different ways of doing money and liquidity that didn't involve these bank reserves. So usually what happens when you have a deflationary shock in the euro dollar system that we can't observe, as we just talked about, we can't quantify the amount of money that's actually out there in the euro dollar system. 
But we know that when there's a deflationary shock, a couple of things will happen. We'll see the deflationary consequences in markets as well as the economy. And most of all, we'll see the Federal Reserve react to that deflationary shock by doing these quantitative easings, by raising the level of bank reserves in response to the hidden deflationary money that we don't see. So everybody sees the Fed's balance sheet go up and think money has been printed. They don't see the money that has been destroyed in the shadow system. And so we're left believing that the Fed has printed a bunch of money that's highly inflationary when in in certain circumstances, especially 2008, 2009 in the aftermath, and to a degree, 2020 and 21 and 22, and now into 2023, we, we know that there's more deflation in the monetary system than whatever the Fed might have created in terms of bank reserves. So what we see isn't the entire story. In fact, what we do see with bank reserves is the least interesting or the least relevant part of it. See, when I look at um, QE, I don't think of it in terms of monetary stimulus. I gave up with all of that and realized it's just debasement is how I found it. And that's why the correlation with asset prices um, and that it is not actually stimulatory and it doesn't create inflation and will never create inflation. Um, so, you know, and I, and I found a lot of good signal from, from using the balance sheet, but this, the inability to money to move around the system is another issue here, right? So we've got this reverse repo where money's trapped. The banks after Basel III have had different rules of what they can do with money. And I think the world kind of changed in 2008. How are you thinking about how that, the kind of the banking system works in, in areas of the world where we can measure it? Well, that's always the issue. It's never really about money stock to begin with or money supply. It's always about the amount of supply that's actually in circulation. So it's, you know, you think back to the Great Depression. We had more than enough gold in the world. It just didn't circulate. And because it didn't circulate, it led a lot of places that needed gold or some form of convertibility unable to meet it and therefore created all sorts of problems. So it's always about circulation and not strictly money, money stock. But what is it that's supposed to be in circulation? Well, it's not bank reserves. Bank reserves can't circulate in the real economy because they're only an interbank token. So what central banks hope happens is that by giving uh, commercial banks this interbank token, they'll then do something in the real economy as a response to it, which means circulating either some form of money or credit inside the banking system or more, uh, more, more uh, what we would like to see is banks circulate credit in the real economy to create and circulate credit in the real economy whereas over the last couple years especially especially this year you know banks have been reluctant to do so uh, we've seen a cash migration away from small u.s regional banks for example not just those but in particular because that's the ones that we're talking about silicon valley bank and others where you know everybody got a huge chunk of that stimulus in 2021 in particular and sort of made business plans and made, you know, made out their balance sheet in terms of banks, figuring that, okay, we've got a bunch of new deposits and we can, we can then invest our, 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 these new deposits as sort of, you know, as if this is going to continue down the road, if, if, as if the good times are here forever. And what they didn't count on is being drained of all that cash and then confronting the inability to redistribute or to reborrow that, those funds back when, they migrated someplace else. And that's really the interesting part about the 2023 banking crisis story is that I think everybody knows that deposits move someplace else. They started doing this last year and most of those deposits migrated to larger banks as well as money market funds and some other non-bank types. But money market funds and non-banks should be relending back to these banks that have been drained of their cash. And the reason they're not doing it is the reason that we should be focused on. Whether, Raul, like you said, is, is that the reverse repo? If it is the reverse repo, then it's still, you know, why aren't banks uh, out-competing the Fed's reverse repo to reattain these funds? Why aren't, they, why aren't they in the wholesale market saying, you know, I've lost all of these deposits. I'd like to replace them in repo or some other derivative financing. So I'll compete for these funds. Or from the other perspective, maybe why are, why are money market funds so much more, uh, uh, so much so much satisfied to keep funds in the reverse repo at the fed rather than lending them out in some other practice is it because the money market funds have become overly cautious themselves and are only looking for the least amount of return that they can get for the for the guarantee of safety 
there's something that is inhibiting the free flow of cash, quote unquote cash, throughout the system that is leaving those parts of, a, of you know, US regional banks and others unable to compete or something is stopping the circulation of money throughout the global system that has led us into this banking crisis. It's not really about rate hikes. It's not really about Silicon Valley Bank or Signature or First Republic or Credit Suisse, although maybe Credit Suisse more than the others. It's about the lack of redistribution and recirculation. Yeah, to me, a banking crisis is a deflationary shock 101. It's telling us that there's a scarcity of money around. And as you said, it's difficult to know where that is emanating from. One of the things I've been thinking through is, is the world, because it needs so many dollars, which is part of Brent's idea about the dollar milkshake theory, is the US has to run these gigantic deficits to supply the world. And if ever that shrinks, the whole world runs out of dollars really fast. So what we're seeing, I think, with the US banking system is money being trapped, showing how tight the system is, which has always been your point of view here, where the euro dollar market is usually tighter than most people expect. And very small things have very large ripple effects. Yeah, I think it's, you know, before the 2008 crisis, really before August of 2007, the U.S. deficits, the U.S. trade deficit in particular, didn't really matter for the condition of dollars around the world because banks were just going to create dollars that were necessary to begin with. And so in the pre-crisis era, everything seemed to be liquid and working and elastic because it was, and it was because banks were willing to create the money and resources and debt and derivatives, all, you know, whatever the system needed to make sure that everything worked in the way that we wanted it to. I mean, unparalleled global prosperity. There's no denying that it worked really well when it worked. The problem is it worked too well and went too far in the other direction so that on the other side of 2008, as you just said, banks aren't willing to create dollars, which leaves other, for, other types of creation, which don't really do the same type of job that the euro dollar system does, which means more often than not, we're, we're faced with a situation, as you just mentioned, where the system doesn't have enough dollars, even though the Fed is creating all these trillions in bank reserves, there isn't enough bank money around the uh, around the euro dollar system that leaves it susceptible to what should be nothing, right? The smallest little thing can set off this major, major, uh, major issue because it's that fragile. Isn't that the, the concept of, of fragility or um, uh, I forget what it's called, uh, Taleb's thing there? where you know, something small leads into a huge thing because the system is actually more fragile than you, get, than you actually uh, understand it to be. And that's really been the problem because banks are both the money creators as well as the redistributors. They're supposed to do intermediation as well as money creation, but since 2008, they don't wanna do either. They wanna just hold to the safest and liquid assets and just try to pick up as many nickels as they can, understanding that, you know, whether it's in a couple of months or a couple of years, they're going to go through another liquidity problem again and have to worry more about safety and liquidity than they do about risk taking and all the types of activities that we really need the banks to undertake in this type of system to generate money, sufficient levels of money to, to uh, return the economy back to where it needs to be. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. And I think some of this was the outcome of Basel III. So the, reg the regulation was to stop, stop excessive leverage within the banking system. And what they've created is a banking system that doesn't provide any leverage at all. And that's created, I think, this enormous cyclicality in the world. There's a whole bunch of things that have happened since 2008 that weren't really observable before. And this euro dollar shortage you know, and the rising dollar itself is all structurally to do with this same issue. It's, and I just think of the world now as a game of musical chairs. And if you take away one of the chairs, one of these small butterflies flapping its wings, it could be Silicon Valley Bank. Who knows what it brings down at the end of this? Because it's also connected. If you remove funding 
from the core market, which is like a U.S. regional bank, what the hell is it going to do to an emerging market? Yeah, down the road, right? I mean, again, the markets are all screaming. Something is going to happen this year that's going to lead to much lower interest rates. And I think what they're saying is, I look at some of these curves, what they're saying is that a year from now, there's a high degree of probability we're talking about zero interest rates. And not just amount, not just in terms of short-term money market rates, but maybe even longer-term U.S. Treasury, things like that. And you're right, Basel three, Basel three and a half in particular, I think really it hammered home some of the things that were already going on from the crisis. I mean, I talk about this all the time, the lessons of Bear Stearns. This really goes back to that part of the, of the first financial crisis, the first monetary crisis, where banks realized that, holy crap, this stuff is real. All the risks that we thought were just kind of risks and, the, you know, we thought the Fed would be able to bail us out. Well, it turns out that we can actually fail. And from the perspective of, of large banks around the world, you don't want to be the next Bear Stern because you get wiped out. You lose all your equity, you lose everything, you lose your job, you lose, you lose, you lose your entire franchise. So banks from the very get-go in 2008 began changing the way they actually operate, the way they behave. And a lot of that in the short run as well as long run is they build up higher cash cushions. They build up higher collateral cushions, which is, again, that's, that's not risk-taking, that's the opposite. They also de-risk their portfolios, which is exactly what you just mentioned. Even before we get to Basel III, banks were doing that too. And they hedge, they hedge and over hedge out of all their positions because they're, they don't want to be the next Bear Stearns. Their, their overriding focus is always about survival and liquidity rather than risk taking and doing all the stuff that we need. So when we get to 2000 or 2023 and then Silicon Valley Bank fails, it's another reminder to undertake these same things, which regulations like Dodd-Frank and Basel III sort of they codified what banks were already doing to begin with and making sure that there really is no path to going back to risk taking. And they're going to do that to all the regional banks in the end. They, oh, yeah. Some will go bust. Some will get merged. A bunch of shit's going to end up on the Fed balance sheet and they're all going to be regulated out of existence over time. And Isn't the, that what they're already talking about? They're already talking about, you know, the hearings in Capitol Hill. Let's grill all these bankers and see what, the, what more Congress should do about them as if that's, that's really the problem. And it's, they're always looking backwards. They're never looking forward. I mean, nobody right now is really stopping to analyze what is it that's really going on with the banking system. It's not just about the redistribution and lack of circulation of, of money between money market funds and regional banks. What is causing all this apprehension to begin with? And I think it only starts with commercial or commercial real estate in the same way that it was, you know, the 2008 crisis wasn't really about subprime mortgages. That's just where it began. And once it started to infect all of these major functions in the banking system, it led to the situation that we're confronting now where money didn't circulate freely throughout the global euro dollar system, which led to all sorts of problems. So the issue isn't rate hikes. It isn't about treasuries that are underwater. It's about assets that are not being valued properly for given economic and monetary fundamentals that's causing people to pull back which is only natural from an individual perspective. What would you do when you have, when confronted with such so much negative information asymmetry? You do what you would naturally. You just, okay, I'm gonna take some chips off the table and just wait to see how everything works. But that's the pro-cyclicality, which leads to, is I take money off the table, it causes markets to become illiquid. Illiquid markets means that everybody gets even more uncertain. We take more chips off the table and we get into the self-reinforcing vicious cycle where before you know it, interest rates are at zero. And my, I've spent a long time working on this and I think it's all down to demographics that caused all of this. And then the replacement of, as GDP growth globally slowed, debt growth became the driver and then debt growth slowed. And, and now you've got the situation where all the major economies are 100% plus of GDP and debt, roughly. And interest rates have to remain low for this whole thing to function. And there's just not enough money for all of what is necessary just to meet the interest payments, essentially, for both the private sector and the, and the public sector. And that's why we've got this huge problem that we're in. I figured it out that, you know, let's assume that trend rate of growth in the US is 2%. It's actually 1.75, but for easy numbers, 2%. And interest rates are at 2%, which is where they've averaged over the last, you know, since the financial crisis. The U.S. government's 100% of GDP in debt. That means 100% of GDP growth each year just pays the interest on the government debt. But the private sector is not 120% of GDP in debt. 
and they're seeing interest rates of 2% plus. So it's dragging down the economy at all stages, which is why it keeps ending up, the, the debt payments end up on the on the balance sheet. And I think this is all, and I think I've proven out, it's all to do with demographics that's created this shortage everywhere because we had too much debt in the system and now not enough money to service the debt, which is why you keep pointing out that time after time after time, this stuff blows up. You know, I think the demographics are a big part of it, but also productivity, because mm. we got away with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. In the eighties and nineties with massive amounts of productivity because of the adoption of the internet and computers and everything else, which actually did create legitimate prosperity for a long time. But then once the productivity started to decline, really getting into the 21st century, then you're right. Then it was all about finance. It was all about, let's just create more money to see if we can just keep it all afloat. If we can keep juggling all the balls in the air, you know, without the productivity growth, then we are, we're, we're facing a very different economic baseline than before. And I think that's, that's part of the monetary story, the Euro dollar story of the pre-crisis era is that as productivity started to generate real economic growth, it led into this belief that there was no risk, that we can just do any insanely stupid thing that we want. And by we, I mean banking system. That's where subprime mortgages came from. The idea that the, the global economy would go on forever in this, this, this massively favorable state where productivity, regardless of demographics, we're gonna create new, new, uh, new technologies. We're gonna adopt them across a wide, wide scale uh, of the uh, global economy. And just the good times would go on forever. And nobody ever prepared for when that inevitably declines because as you know, Raul, history is always cyclical. It never goes on forever. The good times never go on forever. And there was going to be a point where, you know, demographics would catch up without productivity. And then you have all the finance that's, uh, that's added on top. And that's really, I think that's, that's one of the most unproductive parts of the entire 21st century is the, the degree to which finance and money overtook real economic factors to be, as you just said, the drivers of economic growth. And of course, it can't drive economic growth. It can't drive economic growth on any long run or sustained fashion, which just leads us into this. It seems like this, it's this, this trap we can't escape from because we've got everything backwards. We're looking at the wrong things and trying to do the wrong, the, trying to solve the real problems with the wrong types of solutions. Yeah, I think, you know, my thesis is productivity does come back with AI and a bunch of these new technologies. But that's not fast. I mean, it takes a while for this stuff to really integrate into the system. So maybe after 2030, we start escaping this trap. But this trap ain't over yet. There's not enough growth. There's too much debt. Uh, and I just can't see how you can generate structural inflation or any of the things people talk about. So are you of the opinion, and we're in a very small group, if you are, <laughs> that 10-year bond yields come back down to one and a half percent or lower. Yeah, I'm thinking lower. <laughs> I mean, you know, I th the way I look at it is, look, look, look at this, as you just pointed out. I mean, look, we went through the first global monetary crisis in 2008. What happened? Structural yields went down. Economists like to refer to it as R star, which is the natural rate of interest, which is nothing more than a reflection of the economic environment, which we just talked about. A low R star, by the way, from the very beginning, that's representative of depression. So a depressionary circumstances in the real economy, you would you expect- You just saw the New York Fed came out and said our square's gone lower. Yes, uh, I know. And it's, it's like, you, it's, why doesn't the light bulb go off for these people? That's not inflation, that's deflation. In fact, Newt Wixell from the beginning said that's depression. When you see low interest rates that stay low, that's depression. And we went through 2020, which, I mean, did anybody really believe we would escape the whole pandemic and disruption without causing more economic damage than we were already going into it with? So what happened essentially is the government- We were going into a recession anyway in 2020, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what the markets were saying. And then it got to be this enormous thing. And then we come out with the other side and everybody's convinced it's this inflationary, prosperous, red hot economy. It's like that never made sense to begin with. It was essentially a temporary kick the can down the road moment. And now we're down the road we're dealing with an economy, as you just said, that was in really bad shape before we got to 2020. And then 2020 happened, which made it even worse. And so the fear is that we're gonna have to revert to a mean here that is a lot less than we thought it was before, which means in the context of interest rates, which are the least least uh, important part of this. I mean, the real economic fundamentals and fallout is gonna be just severe, but interest rates in that situation 
I wouldn't be surprised if we have record low long-term rates in the United States. I mean, flirting with zero, maybe going negative, depending on how things play out from here on. So yeah, I'm in that small camp because I think that's the direction we've been heading in all along. And 2020 didn't stop it, it accelerated it. Yeah, and I, and when, when I think this thing through, for example, the banking issue, right, we, we get rid of this deposit flight stuff, fine. You know, the, that's when the Fed cut and, you know, there's less pressure on money to leave the system. Okay. But then these guys are stuck with this commercial real estate, which is worthless. And that is going to be a huge drag because they're going to stop lending. So it means that growth in a lot of these regional markets is slow because nobody can get access to, to borrowings. This commercial real estate is weighing down on these portfolios. That needs to be worked out. Like Europe, I think this is the same as the European crisis was at banking level. It ended up on the balance sheet of the ECB in the end. And the ECB said, just give us any old shit as collateral and we'll give you money. They will do that. But that stuff is slow to come out the other side of this. Add in AI, jobs growth is going to be slow after we've had the rise in unemployment. So, you know, I think there's a much higher probability than people expect that, as you say, the long end rates are much lower than anybody imagined. Yeah, and you, have to, you also have to consider that, especially commercial real estate, how pro-cyclical that is and how economically sensitive that is compared to something like residential real estate the, a generation ago. I mean, commercial real estate, um, prices have already started to roll over, but valuations haven't, which means that everybody is sitting here on pins and needle, everybody in the banking system on pins and needle thinking, boy, I hope prices rebound sometime soon because I don't want to have to start marking down these assets on my balance sheet because as soon as I do... That leads to everybody knowing that I'm in trouble and therefore deposit flight isn't about interest rates. Now it's about, you know, uh, uh, insolvency, right? And so as the economy rolls over and gets worse, we head toward into head into recession, maybe even worse recession. That does what to commercial real estate prices? They're going to continue to fall, which means the probability of having to mark these portfolios, these commercial real estate assets down only goes up. And so even if we might be able to stop the deposit flight is interest rates, uh, the Fed's interest rate in particular stop and pause here and then maybe go lower. The deposit flight gets taken over by other considerations that are already maybe inevitable. In fact, I think we, we're already seeing the, uh, the, the beginning stages of that anyway, where again, commercial real estate prices are falling, but valuations are still really high. And then it infects other things because as valuations start to go or start to be marked down toward prices, that means that there's going to be disruptions to marketplaces, which means lack of liquidity, which means more risk aversion. And more risk aversion means more lack of liquidity in these markets. And you get into these self-reinforcing spirals and the Federal Reserve and central banks are always looking backward. They don't see these things coming. So there's no help from them either. And pretty soon before you look around, markets are illiquid. Banks are struggling for funding. Some of them, some more of them are failing. It's really not hard to envision interest rates going really low and staying there. Yeah, and I also think the balance sheet comes into play much faster than people expect for the same reasons. I mean, this is a big, ugly mess that's out there because it's not just, you know, real estate values can go up and down and that's fine. The system can absorb it. But when 50% of all commercial office space is empty yeah. and nobody's ever going back to it, I mean, here's you and me. Neither of us are in the office. I've got an office in the Cayman Islands. Nobody's in the office. We've got a real vision office in New York. Nobody's in the office. We can't get out of the fucking lease. The moment we can, right. we're out, as is everybody. There isn't the economic growth plus all these structural changes to how we work from 2020. I mean, it's like, the, it's like a perfect storm of disaster for commercial real estate. And yet, you know, I think that's why they're, they're so intent on selling this narrative. It's all about rate hikes that... You know, as soon as the Fed stops hiking rates, the banking crisis will be over when it's so much more than that, so much worse than that. And I think if you were, Raul, if you were managing a money market fund and you were seeing all of this money come into you because you, you, you offer a better competitive rate, what are you going to do with all those funds? You're going to look around at all the opportunities in repo markets and everything else, maybe even some unsecured lending. You're going to, I'm not going to lend to anybody who has commercial real estate in their portfolio because that would be absolutely insane to do so. I'm sure as hell not going to take commercial real estate as collateral in some of these arrangements. So when you start breaking it down on, on its fundamental levels, the lack of redistribution of money in the, across the entire global system really does start to make sense. 
because I mean, money market funds, as they're demonstrating right now with the debt ceiling, they're overly cautious to begin with. So rather than do anything with the funds, I'm just going to park it in the Fed's reverse repo because that's just the path of least resistance. That's where it makes the most sense. I don't have, I don't want to be exposed to anything right now. So what do you think about the debt ceiling issues and how that plays out here? Well, I think debt ceiling gets resolved. <laughs> is, is there actually any question that it won't? I mean, they've got to play chicken. They've got to play to their constituencies, both sides, and they're going to do this until the last possible minute. Um, and so eventually the debt ceiling gets worked out. Whether that, what that means, I, I don't know. I don't I mean, it doesn't really matter. But it, in this, it's, it's already at this late stage that the debt ceiling has already caused some problems, in the, especially in the T-bill markets, which is, I mean, let's, we can least afford more disruptions and unpredictability at this particular time in, in economic and monetary history. So whether the debt ceiling gets worked out or not, or not, I mean, we've already suffered through the parts of it already that has created more problems than we can really handle. Um, when we get to the other side of it, when the Treasury starts to issue debt again, I actually think that's a good thing. Um, and that actually might help because the system is very desperately short of especially Treasury bills. So maybe some issuance of Treasury bill actually helps out. And I know most people think it's the opposite. When the when the TGA balance goes up, that drains bank reserves. But as we already talked about, bank reserves are not something that I really pay much attention to. T-bills are more useful as a form of currency than bank reserves are. So that might actually help. But not if we're already into this situation where we're, we have a banking problem on top of an economic situation, recession. Then even the, uh, an influx of helpful Treasury bills won't be enough to, to stem the crisis. And also, this reminds me a lot of 2011 when we last went through this. Remember, Europe was already creaking at the seams at that point. There were signs that their banking system and their sovereign debt market was was going. And here we are in a similar situation with the U.S. regional banking system. Um, what happened in 2011 was yields collapsed. <laughs> Absolutely. And the, you know, we saw the, it's almost exactly the same thing because we had the monetary crisis develop late 2010 into early 2011. You saw the yields go way down, especially in European markets, but also U.S. Treasuries, too. And then, oh, by the way, we had this debt ceiling, which made it, you know, that much more, that much worse. We had the debt downgrade, too, which just added more stress to the system that, we, that it couldn't handle it. And then as soon as the debt ceiling got resolved, we went right back to the banking crisis because it never really left. It never really, it never really, you know, it was always there throughout. And it wasn't really about European sovereign debt, as you just said. It's it's really about how banks were using them and valuing them as collateral throughout the rest of the system. They just couldn't withstand the revaluation of even sovereign bonds. So if we're thinking about the same thing in terms of commercial real estate and other other types of financial collateral out there too, which might be even a bigger problem for some of these banks, it's the same type of setup where it's not really about the debt ceiling. We have the monetary banking crisis to begin with. The debt ceiling adds more pressure to it. Regardless of what happens with the debt ceiling, we still have to deal with the monetary and banking crisis uh, afterward, after it's all over. Are you picking up anything in the collateral markets or is it relatively okay? From anything right now, we're sort of... You know, crises are never, they never go in a straight line. There's always ebbs and flows. They're always incremental stages. And so we got the first real indication that things were going bad last fall, September and October. There's all, a whole bunch of stuff. That, that stuff in the UK with the gilt market, that was, that was the first warning sign that things weren't going well. Um, and the markets went crazy after that. The next stage, I mean, in between then and March when we started to get bank failures, it seemed to be relatively calm, which is not, you know, that's the typical crisis period, uh, typical crisis pattern where something happens and then everybody thinks, oh, the world's going to end. This is going to lead to disaster. And then nothing else happens. That's just how it goes. And then something else happens, which was March and everything. Oh, my God, here it comes. This is the worst thing. It's going to lead to, you know, the, the end of the world. And then it slowly gets better. At least it seems to get better. And that's kind of where we are today. That's right. We suffered the, the next stage of the crisis. The system reacted to it. It created a short run equilibrium, even in collateral markets where right now, uh, that's why you see rates backing up. We see yield curves that are less extreme. The indications in, sh in forward rate markets are less extreme than they were a couple of weeks ago because we're in the ebbs and flows of the crisis. But the crisis is still there. We just can't see it as much. It's not as urgent today as it was several weeks ago or a couple months ago. So 
as we move forward and we start talking about more fallout from the crisis that's going to continue, we start talking about the economic consequences that are going to make that crisis even worse. We expect to see the next incremental stage in it, which would be who knows what. I mean, more bank failures likely. I mean, wasn't wasn't it just uh, Friday that Janet Yellen was having her talks on Wall Street talking about not a part of the official readout, but I think it was some media outlet said that they talked about more future mergers among the banking sector. I mean, even the government knows this thing isn't over. It's just we're in that intermediate phase and we're just waiting for the next thing to hit. Yeah, exactly right. It's why is the bond market, why are yields holding up? Because the euro dollar markets, you know, were inverting. The yield curve was inverting. Economic growth is slowing. All the forward projections are slowing. It's written everywhere. Why are yields so sticky? That's, that's been the one surprise to me that they've been slower to come down than I would have thought. Well, there's always that natural tension, right? I mean, Yield curve inversions are at such extremes, there, maybe there's a natural limit there because you gotta remember this, this is a big broad market and some people in the market are investments. They're thinking about, well, do I want a 10 year that only yields three and a half percent when I can get a two year at 4% or I can get a short term rate at five and I get the reverse repo at five something. There's always that investment alternative that, that is, that's what makes rates sticky. In fact, to me, it's astounding that rates have gone as low as they have, that inversions have gotten as big as they have, because as you just pointed out, all the longer run economic fundamentals scream for lower rates, but yet we don't know exactly when that happens. And the short-term rate alternatives are an attraction for funds and for credit. So if short-term rates are up in the fives, there may be a limit as long as short-term rates are in the fives for how far or how low temporarily longer term rates can go. But as soon as short term rates start to tick lower or they look likely that they're going to, that's when I think you see the long term rates really start to go down because that'll be the point when even those that are in the market for investments start to say, well, yeah, that, that 10 year at three and a half percent starts to look a whole lot better if short term rates are gonna come down. Maybe I'll take a 10 year at two and a half percent. Now, Euro dollar markets are pricing in what? A cut by July, isn't it? Well, there's always probabilities, and I think the market right now is saying that we don't know about July, uh, we don't know about June, June's, June's kind of up in the air. July, you go back a couple of weeks, the market was saying that there was a maybe 50-50 chance of a rate cut by July. That's kind of gone away now because of you know, ebbs and flows. What the market is saying is that September. By the time we get to September, rates are going to be lower, the short end as well as the long end. So that's really... Something happens this summer when we get to September, which only makes sense because you look at every crisis period or near every crisis period, it's always September. The middle of September, like the middle of March, that's a seasonal point, which we always go through these things. So if you're thinking ahead, there's probably a really good chance that something happens in September, if not beforehand. My view on this is after the fastest rate of change of interest rates in history, the probability is that maybe the euro dollar market is underestimating the speed and size of cuts when they happen. You know, it's, you know, if you've got a banking crisis and inflation is going to negative and unemployment's rising, I think there's a much higher probability that the first cut is 100 basis points. <laughs> I more much higher probability than most people are expecting. I think you. I mean, the problem is. A lot of people believe the Fed. The Fed, Jay Powell has said, all these policymakers have said, not just the Fed, the ECB too, everybody has said, we are going to keep interest rate. Wherever, wherever the terminal rate point is, take us out of the word. We mean it this time. We're not just going to cut interest rates. And so there is a material risk that the Fed is just going to stick its head in the sand and keep short-term rates as high as they are until it becomes absolutely un... They can no longer hold it to that policy to begin with. And so... I think that the reason why the markets are conflicted is because the Fed has shown unusual resolve in this situation where they have, they, this time they mean it. We're not just, it's not just going to be like 2019 where we just, you know, there, maybe there's a recession and they just start cutting rates in the middle of 2019, just out of abundance of caution. They have said, we're going to stick with rate hikes. And the market has said, we still don't believe you, but yet you can see why the market's a bit conflicted here because the Fed can remain irrational for a very long time. The Fed can ignore 
even seriousness in the banking. I mean, the Fed has basically said that stuff in March, Silicon Valley Bank, that's all nothing. We're, it does, we're still worried about inflation. And so I think that's what the markets are really looking at is we think the economic fundamentals demand lower rates, but we recognize the Fed can ignore those fundamentals for a very, very long time. So, okay, we've talked a lot about the U.S., where else are we going to see more shoes to fall within this? You know, we're talking about the global euro dollar market. Where else are you think we're likely to see issues arise? Because oh, there's never in... just one area, right? Never. No, it's always one. Th it's really just variations on the same theme at different places and to different degrees. Yeah. Right now we're seeing in Asia. Asia, you know, the market's kind of, okay, there's less urgency for U.S. regional banks. There's less urgency in European banks, but... Look at China, look at Asia, look at the trade disaster going on there, the economic and financial fundamentals, especially the real estate sector in China. Enormous amount of risks. Now China reopening didn't work. A complete disappointment, if not worse, which makes Asia a big, much bigger, riskier bet than it was before, which is why I think you see the dollar. China's yuan is starting to get weaker. The yen, the, the Korean won, other currency, the Indian rupee. So Asia is now in focus as one of those places where if everything is starting to go wrong, it really needed to go right in China and Asia, and it's starting to go wrong too. So maybe we need to focus a little bit more on the Asian economies and the Asian financial fallout from, let's face it, China never got better either. I mean, the Chinese situation only became more unbearable after 2020, after the lockdowns, after the pandemic and everything else. Um, and the Chinese have made it made it very clear that they're just going to kind of let this ride to see how it goes. They're going to try to limit the downside as much as they can. But as that downside emerges, maybe their ability to limit the, the downside becomes much more questionable in doubt. And so it just it just becomes another focus for these deflationary potential that is spreading throughout the rest of the world, not just potential. I mean, you look at commodity prices, you look at uh, producer prices and good prices in Asia, they're already falling. They're already into deflation. Just to me, when I see this set of cards, having seen how it plays out, I just can't see a world within which massive stimulus doesn't come over the next 18 months at every level, from, from interest rate cuts to central bank printing of money or whatever, however you want to term it, and fiscal because that is what these markets are telling us that we've got a tremendous period of weak growth ahead and that in a system so under collateralized versus the amount of loans out there the one thing you can't allow to fall is the price of collateral because then it's then it's game over um so that's reliquifying or debasing the entire yeah, fiat currency base. I, I just can't see a way around this. And I just, and I can't find anybody to give me a data-driven argument why inflation is sticky or why this is not just back to mean reversion. And the down from 2020 and the up in 2021 just go back to trend in the end. Yeah, well, that's, I'm not going to give you the other side of that case because I agree with it 100%. I think that the, the the most logical case that you can make as far as inflation or consumer prices is that we're going to go through this period where it's exceptionally volatile. We'll go through these alternating periods where consumer prices skyrocket because of all the short-term fundamentals. And inevitably, the reversion to the mean leads to deflationary period, lack of economic growth, recession and worse, which will then cause governments around the world to intervene because that's what they're doing. That's the type. That's what they're that's the playbook that they they follow which imbalance of supply and demand. We go through another conflict, consumer price, uh, uh, consumer price outbreak that everybody can, is uh, mistakes for uh, reflation or recovery and, and, and the like. And then we just go back and forth and in, in and out of these consumer price spikes interspersed with periods of deflation, which is, this is obviously not the 1970s, not really inflation. It's just this confused period of being stuck in this low growth state and governments being unable to dislodge that background or that baseline and just temporarily trying to kick the can a little bit further down the road and just and actually making it worse as we go further and further without any legitimate sustainable economic advance. Yeah, because they're just not pro-cyclical, this stupid central bank. Surely they must know that, you know, if they were just a little further in advance of the cycle, which 
Everybody else can see. I can't believe they're stupid. So there must be a reason that they're doing it this way. Because you know where the rate should be now. And, you, you know, the lag is unnecessary. Well, the, I th the lag or is, is necessary. maybe it's political. That's I mean, that's what I was just going to say. Part of it is definitely political. The reason why the Fed got so, you know, it turned into Paul Volcker, or at least, the, you know, trying to become the myth of Paul Volcker, is you got to believe that you know, the Biden administration, as well as other pol politicians around the country, were calling Jay Powell and other, you know, all their contacts at the Fed saying, we don't care if you do anything about inflation, just appear to be doing something. Because you can't just sit there on your hands. Everybody's Everybody's really pissed off here. Consumer prices are obviously the biggest problems that voters are confront confronting. We just need you to do something. But the bigger problem is that with actual, you know, and the Fed does always look backward because the Fed does not know how to measure money supply. I mean, we don't know how to measure money supply. They sure as hell don't. They also don't know how to measure money demand, which was their big thing for a long period of time. They stopped being able to measure money supply. They can't measure money demand. So they don't know what interest rates are really supposed to be, which is why they put so much emphasis on the CPI or the unemployment rate, because they're trying to make a couple of huge assumptions, which is that if we rig jigger the interest rates around in a certain way and the CPI stays low and the unemployment rate stays low, then we're going to assume that we got interest rates where they need to be, because we have a bunch of sophisticated models that tell us that. In the absence of being able to get any information directly from the monetary system, they're looking at macroeconomic variables, which, as you just said, Raul, they're all backward looking. So they're never proactive. They're always looking at the CPI telling us what something happened, you know, last year. They're looking at the unemployment rate when the unemployment rate is the least, least reliable cyclical indicator there is. And they're thinking, well, maybe we're doing something right because the CPI looks like it's moving in the right direction and the unemployment rate is remaining low. So... Let's stick with interest rates where they are until we know until we actually have macroeconomic variables that tell us that they're wrong. So by the time they actually react, it's way too late. Final question for you. Are the euro dollar curves shifting around much and reassessing probabilities or are they pretty now consistent about the kind of pace of the cuts and the timing of the cuts? The timing has been the variable from the very beginning. The outcome hasn't. The markets have been absolutely certain. Once this thing happens, whatever this is, once it happens, rates are going down, they're gonna go down by a lot. But what we don't know is when it happens and when the Fed recognizes that thing happening and starts to lower short-term rates, which then would unlock long-term rates to go lower too. So the markets have always said, this is going to happen. And then everything that has happened over the last eight months, really going back to last year, has merely confirmed that suspicion. We've got the, you know, the thing in the UK and Swiss National Bank and all this stuff last fall. Then a banking crisis. So as everything has developed over the last year, you were thinking that was, you know, we're going to end up with zero rates at some point in the future. Everything that's happened makes it more likely that's going to happen. So more confirmation that we're going to end up in that direction. It's just always been about when. When does this happen? There were parts, there were times last year, last June, when the euro dollar futures inversion or term sulfur futures inversion thought that maybe things were going to get out of control in 2022. And maybe the last rate hike would have been December. Well, that didn't happen because the Fed was able to, you know, it didn't get to be a big enough factor in the Fed's calculation to force the reaction function to change. But now it's okay, maybe it's the second half of this year, which the market is saying. It's a really, you know, we're never certain about timing, but we're getting more certain about timing, at least in the terms of September and the later parts of this year. So the outcome has always been the same as far as the markets is concerned. We just don't know exactly when it all happens, when it all really starts to get put together. And what's your, what's your best guess? I still think it's this summer, and I still think we stick to the seasonal pattern where the, the, the middle of September that's when the shit always hits the fan. Yeah, it usually starts always... off in August. You start seeing the signs. Accumulates in September, finishes in October. Yep. And then October is when the, really the fallout starts to show up in the, in the real economy as well as the financial markets. So, I mean, there's a reason why these patterns repeat, and it's not just random, random fluctuations. And that's where the, mar I mean, the markets are zeroing in on that to begin with. And again, everything that's happened thus far would leave you to believe that that's more likely, not less likely. Absolutely. Jeff, as ever, fascinating conversation, and it's going to be a very interesting year. Yeah, absolutely. I wish it wasn't. You know, <laughs> I wish we could talk about boring stuff, but 
you know, the, the way things are going, the way the, the system is aligned, it's just, it, it doesn't leave us a lot of good things to talk about. No, no. But there's going to be opportunities for trading, so Absolutely. don't worry about that. All right, my friend, great to see you, and thanks for that. Uh, you're welcome, Raul. Thanks for having me back. So there you go. Jeff sees trouble ahead. It's the same trouble I've been talking about in the global economy, that the markets are clearly pricing in a recession, but not only a recession, but some bad stuff that can happen. And that bad stuff, to me, leads to more liquidity coming out the back of it, which is what the euro-dollar markets are pricing in. How that's going to play out for markets over the summer could be tricky times ahead. We've got the debt ceiling. We've got um, um, we've probably got the next phase of the banking crisis to start. What does that do to the Federal Reserve? How does Jay Powell change his tune? All of this is to play for. I think Jeff's given us a peek into the future. I also think pay attention to what Jeff is saying. This is not just a U.S. issue. This is a global issue. The euro-dollar market is all pervasive everywhere and anywhere. And somewhere, something else will break too. Anyway, good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.